Good evening and welcome to the show. Here is a video from the United States that ticks the sort of woke corporate boxes that are all the rage in Australia these days. My name is Beatriz Acevedo and I am the CEO and co-founder of Sumo Wealth. I was born in Tijuana, Mexico. I am a very proud border girl who had the privilege to grow up with the best of both worlds. I went to school in San Diego. I went to UCSD. I have a lot of, a lot of scars from my days uh, going across the border. Many times they would point blank ask me, do you or your family sell drugs? It was just, you know, a classic product of bias, right? And the pandemic hit. And, you know, looking at the stats that our community was the one that was the hardest hit, not just with deaths, but also economic hardship. I decided I want to be able to help them build generational wealth. So Sumo Wealth definitely is something fully out of my comfort zone. We want to help close the Latino wealth gap in our country, which currently stands at 20 cents to a dollar. Not much emphasis on profits there, just helping Latinx, a Latinx woman emerge from the racism of white America and in turn help close the wealth gap for other Latinxes, whatever they are. You can imagine the public relations department of any major Australian corporation looking at this company's videos and thinking, oh yeah, we need to do something like that too. Oh, but did I say which company this video was made by? I love how SBB thinks about it, not as charity, not as DNI work, but as a good business practice to be able to fund this next generation of thriving entrepreneurs. Yep, that's right, SVB, otherwise known as Silicon Valley Bank, which was so committed to advancing businesses owned by minority groups that it forgot to keep an eye on the government bonds it was holding which suddenly lost value thanks to the US government issuing newer, higher paying bonds. When there was a run on the bank, SVB had to sell what bonds it could at a loss. Pretty soon it didn't have the cash to repay its depositors and it went broke. This should have been predictable to any half-decent bank executive given the amount of money the US government was pumping into the economy and the 7% inflation that was eating away at financial assets. SVB has been joined by another medium-sized bank, Signature. It might not be the last. US banks were sitting on almost a trillion Australian dollars worth of unrealised losses last year. I hope none of those banks' depositors are watching this or reading the business pages because if they all suddenly made a dash for the nearest teller to convert their deposits back to cash, those unrealised losses will, like at SVB, also be realised. Joe Biden's speechwriter knows what that means and quickly dashed off a script for the president to read out to a nervous nation. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. 
You can talk, mate. Biden's the bloke who caused this catastrophe by pumping trillions of dollars into the economy, stoking inflation and forcing the Federal Reserve to bump up interest rates. Sound familiar? That's because it is. All the same conditions apply in Australia, except for one. Stricter regulations mean our banks are less exposed to risk although this hasn't stopped the share price of some medium-sized Australian banks taking a hit. But the bigger point here is, where's dear prudence? The fashion in Canberra these days is to put out infernos with fire hoses connected to underground vaults filled with endless stacks of $100 bills. But this kind of solution isn't entirely convincing to people who struggle to put food on the table. While the government finds new and innovative ways to spend money, such as the recently created NDIS, which will splurge almost 700 billion of your dollars over the next decade, it is reluctant to find savings elsewhere, other than to raid super or introduce new taxes. Even people who understand the urgent need to bolster our defence against China saw Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announcing a $368 billion subs deal with Joe Biden in San Diego this week and thought, where's that money going to come from? There is a massive opportunity for a political party to tap into Australia's natural conservatism here. But don't hold your breath. Australia's most populous state, New South Wales, goes to the polls on March 25, and both major parties are trying to bribe their way into power with vague promises of handouts and other sweet government schemes. But, as I said last night, nothing to make electricity cheaper or more reliable. Without that, all the promises in the world are about as enticing as a fifth COVID jab. This morning, it was reported that power bills for households will jump by up to 24% from July 1. Again, neither major party in New South Wales is offering anything to reduce the cost of producing the electricity, which is what smart people want. Neither is Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen. He said, quote, we know that every increase will still be tough for consumers and small businesses, and that's why we will continue to work with the states and territories to deliver energy bill relief in the May budget. Got that? He won't reduce the cost of energy. He'll just magic up some energy bill relief and hope that you don't notice that it came out of your own pocket. Bowen went on. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has seen energy costs skyrocket globally and Australia has not been immune. Well, when in doubt, blame Putin. Never mind that Australia could be energy independent overnight if Bowen and every other politician in the nation backed construction of coal, gas and nuclear generators instead. You don't need to be a federal minister to understand this. You just need to have common sense. Just as there was a fundamental disconnect between the woke overlords at SVB and the bank's ordinary depositors, so too is there a chasm between Australian politicians 
and the people they claim to represent. Now, let's bring in Daniel Wild of the Institute of Public Affairs, who is on a road trip through four electorates in rural New South Wales to gauge voter sentiment in the lead up to the state election on March 25. Unlike the major political parties, the IPA is out there listening to people on the street and finding a lot of discontent that doesn't necessarily correlate with the sort of solutions the major political parties are offering. Daniel, welcome. G'day, Fred. Daniel, let's not get into the politics just yet. Firstly, please tell us which electorates you're visiting and what sort of people you're meeting out there. Yeah, Fred, so we're in uh, four electorates, as you mentioned, Orange, Berth uh, Bathurst, Dubbo, and the Upper Hunter. Now, these are fairly critical parts of the state in terms of the upcoming election, and we might get into that into a minute, but the kinds of people that we're meeting with are uh, business, local business groups and uh, local people here that are employed in those key sectors in coal, uh, agriculture, transport and manufacturing that are going to be bearing the brunt of a lot of these emission mandate policies. As you know, both sides of politics in New South Wales, uh, the Coalition and Labor, have committed to the net zero emissions by 2050 target. So uh, there's a lot of people in the regional and rural parts of the state uh, that are looking for a choice. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially you're talking about middle Australia, aren't you? Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a lot of mainstream Australians here, not just employed directly in those industries, but don't forget all of the flow on industries that, the, that feed off those critical sectors like retail, hospitality and so forth. They're all going to be negatively impacted when these jobs go. Now, we hear a lot of glib promises from politicians that come here and say, well, we're going to have all these new green jobs and uh, everything's going to be fine. But I've got to tell you that firstly, that's just not true. You know, our research shows, for example, that over the last decade, for every one job destroyed uh, in, uh, for every one job created in the renewable sector, five jobs have been destroyed in the manufacturing sector. Uh, but it's also not uh, holding water here uh, with the locals who do not believe city-based politicians when they make these promises. Yeah, we'll get to the uh, the transition, the so-called transition to renewables in a minute, because I, I want to play you a little take of, of Chris Bowen talking about exactly that. But but firstly, I mean, these the people in the regions, the, they make city life possible. I mean, they're producing the food, they're digging up the coal, they're making the energy that turns city lights on. Do you think, what's the mood like out in that region now? And what sort of flow on effect do you think it will have in the cities? Well, there's palpable anger and discontent that they're not being listened to. Like you say, this is a part of the world, like I'm in Bathurst right now, and we've just been to Dubbo. Uh, this is a part of the country that puts food on the table of families. They keep the lights on. They earn the export revenue, which is then reinvested into critical social infrastructure like schools, roads, hospitals, law and order, that everybody benefits from. Uh, but they're being taken for granted by those in the inner cities uh, who not only don't listen to or have any real care for those in the regions, but they're actively imposing these policies on them. For example, you don't see anyone advocating for solar panels or massive wind farms in, you know, on Bondi Beach or on the North Shore of Sydney. Uh, no, they're saying, well, everybody else has to deal with these policies, but the inner city elite uh, don't have to face the realities of what it means to have these renewables projects, which take up an enormous amount of land getting built on prime agricultural land 
undermining our agricultural sector while we shut down the coal mines that give us 24-7 baseload power? Well, how are we going to have a manufacturing sector or heavy industry when we've got nothing to power it? But these realities simply are not being heard by our political leaders in the cities, whether it's Sydney, Melbourne uh, or Canberra. Uh, they're not listening to what the locals in the regions have to say. Yeah, well, I notice there's another big difference between Bathurst and Sydney. Sydney's still festooned with a lot of pride flags left over from World Pride. I don't see many behind you there in Bathurst. Can you elaborate on the sort of things that really are worrying people in Bathurst, though? Yeah, well, there's only there's only one flag here, and it's the Australian flag, and it's the most inclusive uh, flag of all, Fred, because everyone can be an Australian. That's what's so great about our country. No matter what your background is, your your race, your race, religion, gender, everybody can be an Australian, uh, glued together by our values of freedom, democracy, egalitarianism. So that's what makes our country so great. You know, what is on the mind of of locals is really their future. There's a big concern that the communities will contract rapidly as the jobs in these critical sectors start to disappear. We've already seen that in a lot of towns throughout regional Queensland and regional New South Wales. They were all promised. You know, all these promises to be made by politicians day after day, week after week, year after year, that the jobs will come in, but the jobs don't exist. Uh, for example, in the, uh, in the massive solar farms, only about three or 400 jobs in the biggest of the projects exist. Those jobs are only there for about 12 to 18 months. Thereafter, you've only got about 10 to 20 workers uh, doing the maintenance job in part-time low-paid work. Um, that's not what's going to sustain local communities into the future. So there's a real concern and anxiety about, you know, are these communities going to exist over the next decade when we've got both sides of politics that are pushing these policies that are undermining those critical industries? Well, yeah, let's talk about those industries. Here is a video of Energy Minister Chris Bowen at the Sydney Institute just this week talking about the transition from cheap, reliable fossil fuels and fossil fuel energy to renewables. I find the conversation, I spend a lot of time in the regions, as I should, in the energy producing regions of Australia. The conversation's changed dramatically in recent years. Uh, a few years ago, you'd go in and you'd, you'd get a very negative reaction. Now, people are much more focused on the opportunities of the transition. Yes, the need for summary training and appropriate investments and support as people make this transition, but not as much as you might think, because energy is energy. And if you're a skilled energy worker, regardless of whether it's traditional fossil fuels or renewable energy, you have a skill set which we need much more of. Um, there are, again, some, some transition issues. For <laughs> there are some transition issues. Daniel, Chris Bowen says that he has spent a lot of time in areas just like the one you're in now and has detected a lot of enthusiasm for the transition to renewables. Does that concur with what you've found? Look, I'm not going to suggest that Chris Bowen is doing anything other than telling the truth, but look, it's hard to believe. I mean, we've asked people here and no one knew he was in town. So I suspect he got ushered from his, you know, his comp car to the five-star hotel, uh, then straight back out again, because he wouldn't have wanted to interact with the actual locals on the ground. So look, I'm not sure who he's been talking to, but uh, certainly no one we've interacted even knew, knew he was here. Uh, but look, the key point is quite simply that this is just another example of how politicians will, will say one thing. Now, they'll come out to the regions, they'll say there's going to be these new jobs, everything will be fine. But the, he sort of let the mask uh, slip there. In that clip that you just played, Fred, he said something to the effect of we need to have appropriate support in place for certain workers. You know what that's code for? That's code for the doll. That's code for there is going to be mass unemployment and these people will not work again. That is what he is saying. Energy is not energy. That is a, 
a completely false statement and a false equivalence. Wind and solar cannot operate 24-7. That's simply not possible. Uh, coal and gas can get the job done in a way that wind and solar cannot. And look, the key point is quite simply that uh, renewable energy at a mass scale is experimental. Yes, it can provide top up, you know, you can put it on your on your roof and it can help in those situations. But in terms of providing the kind of sustainable energy base that you need to have a 21st century economy and society like Australia, it's an experimental proposition. And for Chris Brown, so, you know, to so glibly just say energy is energy, I think reveals how out of touch uh, he is and also how out of touch the political class are. Well, under normal circumstances, this would be an absolute gift to the coalition. They could just waltz in and say, look, we'll, we'll protect your jobs, we'll keep the coal mining going, we'll keep the coal-fired power plants running. What's the coalition doing? What have they missed here? Well, uh, look, it's another example of how there is really diminishing choice for mainstream Australians. Both sides of politics have very similar policies. I accept that there's differences on the margin with how the coalition and Labor say they're going to get to net zero. Uh, yes, at the federal level, the coalition has uh, encouragingly commenced a discussion about nuclear power. That's a positive for us. But look, overall, uh, when Scott Morrison went to Glasgow and signed Australia up to net zero, that was the day he lost the election in 2022 because the electorate said, look, if you're going to adopt Labor Green policy, why don't I just vote for Labor Green or Teals? That's exactly what they did. Now, what that means for the country is we're not actually having a debate about these issues. That's why we're here in places like Bathurst, because no one else is actually communicating that there are real significant problems with this so-called energy transition. It's not even an energy transition because nothing is happening. What we have is a massive energy gap. As these coal-fired power stations close down, nothing is coming in to, the, uh, to replace them. And that's not just the IPA saying that. We've had the Australian Energy Market Operator and the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission reinforced those points, saying that we've got critical supply shortfalls on the East Coast. We need to get more baseload power onto the system. So the government's own chief economic and energy bodies are directly contradicting government policy. Your survey, that you, the, conduct, the survey you conducted in those four electorates has found a massive shift towards independence. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that's right, Fred. So what our survey found is that over 50% of those who we surveyed, and there was over a 1,000 Australians across those four electorates who were in that survey, it was a, a nationally representative sample, uh, over 50% said that they were going to vote at the state election in New South Wales for an independent or a minor uh, party. And that is the highest share it's, it's ever been. And this shows that there is discontent with uh, the major parties, and that there's a real search for political representation going on among middle Australia and mainstream Australians on the key issues of energy. We've seen energy bills rising rapidly. It's families, lower income families and small businesses that are incurring the cost the greatest. But they look around the political situation and they say, well, you know, who's actually speaking up for us? So this is the issue that's driving discontent in places like here in Bathurst. Yeah, well, it's a shame that the coalition isn't speaking up for them because this, where you're standing now is coalition heartland. I mean, Labor's barely held any of those seats in 50 years. So, but just to sort of broaden the picture a little bit, Daniel, let's talk about Donald Trump. In 2016, he showed how it was done by defying enormous odds to win an election that simply mostly appealed to the areas that the elites called flyover states. 
Do you think something like that could happen in Australia if there was a, a character similar to Trump to ever emerge? I don't know about the character side of it because our system is so different. Uh, it's very hard for an outsider to come in. Remember, Trump was an outsider. He came in and really shook up the establishment. So I don't know whether it's going to be driven by an individual. But in terms of your broader point about a realignment, absolutely, that has happened and is happening in Australia at the moment. Uh, what we've seen, like at the 2022 election, for example, at the federal level, 16 of the 20 lowest income seats uh, are now held by the coalition. And on the other side, at the wealthiest seats, Labor now represents more wealthy electorates than the coalition does. So the party of Ben Chifley, the party of Gough Whitlam, is now the party of the wealthy inner city elites. And the coalition, by default, have been the, become the party of the lower income working class. Um, the issue is that there's so many within the, uh, I guess, the, you know, the Liberal Party establishment that sort of uh, look down on that development and have a uh, uh, an assessment that they need to rewin these inner city teal seats. Whereas, look, it's much more prospective to go out to the outer suburbs. I mean, they should go to Chris Bowen's seat. They could easily win Chris Bowen's seat in, in McMahon in the outer suburbs of Sydney with a simple message that resonates with middle Australia. So I think there's a big opportunity there. And to answer your question more directly, absolutely that can happen. What we saw in the US and the UK and across continental Europe absolutely can happen in Australia. It will take a different form because we have compulsory preferential voting, which changes the dynamic in a very significant way. But um, yes, there is a, a deep desire of middle Australia to see that realignment take place. Yeah, well, we've have, we have the same proportion of people who the elites would probably call deplorables too. Daniel Wilde, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's IPA Deputy Executive Director Daniel Wilde on the streets in Bathurst. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at @fredpaul. that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and more by going to adh.tv or downloading our app. Or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary. And there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7pm. Good night.